Thank you very much for that, and in fact, it covers most of what I want to say, so it <laughs> <laughs> takes a lot of pressure off me. Um, I wanted to talk about the wonderful toys and games in the Bodleian's collections and how they can be useful as well as interesting, um, but they did ask me to say first a bit about collecting and about myself. Apparently, a lot of times, collections come from people who have passed on or are a bit past it, and they perhaps thought it didn't apply to me for some reason. <laughs> um, now, I've got a little poker here. About me, um, yes, I did grow up in, I suppose, the 1950s, a little bit of the late 1940s, and there wasn't much television, um, and there wasn't much to be bought, and the ration cards, uh, I can even, I don't want to go on about me, but I, I can remember um, we lived on the east coast in view of the sea, and I can remember these uh, German buzz bombs coming over, um, V1s, and they had a little put 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 noise, and I could hear them from my bedroom, and when the put 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 noise stopped, you knew that they were going to drop down and there would be an explosion. It didn't particularly traumatise me, but it, you know, I, that's where I grew up. I grew up with a, a love of the sea. Um, and a view of the sea. Um, family activities in the evenings, um, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters would gather round and uh, they quite liked playing board games. They always had done in the days before the war. My father got brothers. Um, they liked playing bridge, sort of family bridge competitively, a bit competitively, and the aunts and uncles would pay, play for a penny a point. A uh, bit of fun and the children were roped in to play uh, bridge as make-up numbers. So we got the impression that games were fun and entertaining and social activity between friends and relations. Uh, a love of games and boats. Um, collecting, I think, probably you're born to be a collector. Uh, you know, I, I collect almost anything and, and it's a passion. And it started when I was a child sailing up the river and there was a, a little beach where you could land. It was mostly mud, but this beach washed against a sandy cliff and items were washed out of the cliff. They were little fossils, shells and shark's teeth and things like that. And I collected the shark's teeth and uh, put them into little boxes as a sort of pre-teenager and took them up to the local natural history museum, talked to the curator who was quite interested because what the sea washed into little sections I could find quite quickly. It took him years and years to find them at a dig. So he liked what I was collecting and I found even as a child, if you got some knowledge about a tiny subject and became knowledgeable, you got respect. And it was a lesson I learned about collecting, uh, the fun of finding something new and exciting on the beach. And, oh, that's a wonderful thing. I haven't seen one of those. And then learning about it. So collecting generally. And why old toys and games? Well, as I said, we used to enjoy playing old things. But in the 50s, you went to the toy shop or you looked in the games cupboard at home. I think there was just a, a, a game of Ludo, a game of Sneaks and Ladders, maybe a chess set, maybe a draft set, and not much else. Uh, wealthier families, perhaps a game of Monopoly. But, you know, there wasn't much. But if you went to see Grandma, uh, she'd get something out of a drawer that was made before the war, and it was always better made and much more interesting than the old stuff, than the new stuff. So I started, when I finished school, um, looking out for these things, and they could be found without spending much money, and 
like with the fossils, I, I soon found that I knew more about the games I was collecting and buying from a dealer than the dealer did. You know, something, sometimes antique book dealers would put a few games on a shelf, didn't know much about them, and then I would chat to them and sometimes they'd keep them by for me. So that's how I came into old games. Um, what does the collection reflect now? It's, I, in a way, it's the largest one in the country of the type that I was collecting. Um, but I didn't intend it to be completely comprehensive. It still reflects, to some extent, my personal interests. You know, the f I enjoy a joke and a laugh, and I love the sea and maritime things. So uh, it helps to know that I've collected things that I like, rather than trying to be sort of scientific about it. Uh, when I was deciding to add things to the collection, I'd think about initially, when I was young and starting, is it beautifully made? You know, I, I collected poetry books and uh, for the wrong reasons. I liked them if they were beautifully bound, uh, you know. And the games, I liked them if they were beautifully made. A, a wonderful chess piece, nicely carved, or something turned out of hardwood, um, a wonderfully illustrated print or something. Towards the end, that didn't matter so much. And I was much more interested in whether it shone a light on social history, whether it made you think. And then, as I knew more about them, is it rare? Is it unusual? Does it fill a gap? Does it add to knowledge? But always, not least, you know, is it fun? And does it make you laugh or smile? Here's a first picture of um, a game called Ups and Downs in India. Um, on a serious point, this is one that made me think. Um, page 59, or, or Space 59, um, shows magic lantern slides being used to display. This board game was made by the Church Missionary Society and obviously slightly intended to send a message to people. Um, and here's the message, you know, using IT can help you spread your message. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a hundred years ago. And then here's another message. Um, Look, 57, opposition, turned out of village. Here's a well-meaning Westerner who thinks he knows better and here's the locals saying, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, it made me think about what's going on in the world today. And here's a lovely, wonderful image, already in the Bodleian, this one, and it's in the Johnson collection. And it's games like this in the Johnson that are one reason why I put my collection alongside them, because added together, you know, it makes a wonderful hole for research. But here's Nabbing the Nihilist, a hundred years ago, uh, you know, with his dynamite and his gun. Um, and uh, made me smile the cartoon of, you like, slightly propaganda of what a horrible terrorist looked like at the time. Um, it reminded me also, if you know about the siege of Sydney Street, worth looking up. Um, it's almost exactly what happened in Paris uh, recently, a uh, hundred years ago. You know, there were thousands of police and soldiers involved and an artillery gun brought up and they're trying to find this Peter the painter. Um, they fired into the flat, the flat was burnt out, they found the charred bodies, uh, the mysterious Peter the painter disappeared and was never found. So history goes round and looking at old games and learning what happened in the past seriously can help you, can improve your perspective I think on what's going on today. Now back to the categories in the collection. Everybody keeps talking about it or it's easy to talk about it as a collection of board games and I'm keen to emphasize that it isn't just board games. So here are a few things that are in it. Of course, there are board games, and they mean usually uh, strategy games like a chess 
or a race game like Ludo or Snakes and Ladders. But there's, of course, card games, as you've seen, and dominoes, which are a kind of card, but usually a tile, double-ended. Um, there's dexterity games, which are involve activity, like Shove Hapney or Jenga. There's word games, I've given an example, Scrabble. Question and answer games, I suppose, Trivial Pursuit. Party games, charades and Pictionary, things you do, you know, in a group. Games of pure chance, like a lotto. Um, no strategy, not really a race. Jigsaws and puzzles, these are things you can do by yourself without an opponent. There's teaching toys, like an alphabet, a pastime, like a scrapbook, equipment, counters and dice. Um, and then not least, there's a lot of books and catalogues and trade lists which add to knowledge of the subject. And I would just say that if you want to know more, because this is a very brief talk, um, until one day all the things here that are in the Bodleian are available to view, um, you can view the 1,500 items that I've given and an extra 1,000 besides in an existing um, website, which you'll see at the bottom of this slide, uh, gamesboard.org.uk. And that um, comprises, um, before 1750, it's mainly facsimiles, facsimiles, because the items are very rare. Um, from 1750 to 1830, um, of the early stuff, the majority is a colleague of mine who's collected a wonderful collection of very early printed games. Um, my stuff mostly starts around nine, about 1800. Um, and you'll see from 1830 to 1870, there's 400 items. 70, next 40 years, 650. Next 40 years, 500. Last 40 years, 700. Um, right up to 1990 or 2000. So it's quite a good spread over a 200-year-old period of um, items to look at. And you can see them. You can click on the database. And I'll talk more about it at the end. Now, I'm going to show you a few more pictures. And um, just starting with some examples of the different types I mentioned. Uh, this is an example of the most common, a, a race game. It's a board game, which is a race, with a start and a finish. And uh, if you don't watch Dad's Army, uh, ARP is Air Raid Precautions. Um, this game came up by Roberts Brothers. I think uh, I was told just recently that it had been found in a catalogue from 1939. So it's before the air raids really started. And that's why, at 32, the chap's wearing a gas mask, because I think experience in the first war, we were frightened of gas bombs being dropped and all the children were issued with gas masks and I can remember having one. A bit earlier, this is what you'd call an abstract strategy game. Um, it's a game that's been around in Northern Europe for a thousand years, fox and geese. Um, it's very nice. If you sometimes come across a board like this and you think it's a solitaire board, if it's got these diagonal crossed lines on, it won't be solitaire, it's fox and geese. Um, so an abstract strategy board, very nice to find one dated from 1813. That's quite unusual. Um, here's an example of a puzzle. This is a little homemade puzzle, but it, you know, it, it took my fancy. It says take the red ribbon off the green without removing the buttons. And the buttons don't go through the little hole at the bottom. So you can see immediately it's a bit tricky. Um, nicely made, somebody's taken trouble at home to make something <coughs> as an entertainment. You know, so, sort of thing I like. Um, games equipment. These are 
used sometimes instead of dice, teetotums, I think we normally call them, um, different kinds, different periods. The ones with uh, H and P on, incidentally, are for playing a game of chance called put and take, which some of you may remember. This is educational toy, actually an alphabet on the reverse of these, but they've got a, a word on the front with the same capital letter and you can talk about the picture. So it's a little educational toy, very nice and quite hard to find if you're on a modest budget collecting, but uh, I was lucky to pick these ones up. Here's an example of a word game, a firm called Salis. And again, what I really liked when I collected this one and added it was the picture underneath the lid of the children round a table as a family playing the game, uh, the youngest child having to stand on something so she can reach. And underneath is a picture of either a mother or a governess um, showing something, uh, educating a, a young girl. Uh, this is an example of a trade list, inform important information. Um, Jay Buckland, John Buckland was what was called a toy maker as opposed to a printer and bookbinder. He was a toy maker in London, uh, working from about, I think, 1800 to about 1825, 1830. And here at the bottom of a game of Bell and Hammer, he's printed his list of games. Um, Peninsula, I've, I've seen Peninsula. It's the Iberian Peninsula on a board, a board game, and it follows uh, Wellington's campaign there. Siege, I think Siege is a, a version of Fox and Geese, and there's one called Bonaparte's Flight, New Games, Mathematical Recreation, that must be interesting, Lu Chu, Petty Chess, Round Tribute, Royal Tribute, Caricature Lottery, that's obviously just a game of fun. Uh, so these are games I'm just saying I haven't found, I don't know of a copy anywhere, we'd be wonderful to find them, but here's a list of them, and if it wasn't for the list, we wouldn't know they existed. So the list is important on its own. Uh, dexterity games I've collected, and you might say, what's that? Well, to my definition, it's anything that requires physical activity. And this particular little race game with printed yachts is managed by tweaking the string rather than by throwing a dice. So it's a dexterity game in my categories. And finally, for types, this is called a party game, where everybody in the party has a little card to fill in, but you could equally well call it a word game, because everybody is trying to make up the maximum number of words out of the letters in Oxford or Cambridge. And again, I chose this one personally because I loved the artwork on the box lid, you know, 1930s artwork, very, very nice to me. Now. I can slow down slightly, I think, and just take you on a, a quick tour um, on a chronologi chronological basis, um, 1670 to 1950. Going to start with um, some cards which are not in my collection, and they're not here. They're actually in the Museum of Childhood in Edinburgh, <coughs> but they do illustrate the subject quite well. And we did go up to Edinburgh. We were lucky to be shown around what they'd got in their boxes at the back, because normally you wouldn't know they were there, and to be allowed to take some pictures. And here's a pack of cards which um, came out in the late 17th century. Um, so it's pretty early for English printed games. And they're what I would call morality cards, because there's <coughs> advice given underneath the picture. And you'll see the first one shown is gaming and reveling, and the bit of advice at number one is 
such gaming ought to be abhorred, wherein wit sleepeth, and covetous, covetousness with idleness is only learnt. So it's nice. And then the next one that happens to be shown, um, I don't know whether this is tongue-in-cheek or serious advice at the time, but it did really make me smile, but I'm sure it would make some people cross. A scepter is one thing, and a ladle is another. Uh, number two, this is the one I worried about, the, the more a woman looks in her glass, the less she looks after her house. <laughs> And, uh, and at the end, again, if you think about it, it's quite a serious message. Wishers and wooders are no good householders. So, the me you know, obviously that's nice. The message is be content with what you've got. Um, here is um, a less interesting game, but it's the earliest English printed race game. It came out, I think, on the continent, perhaps in Venice, around the middle of the 16th century, and it was copyrighted in England around the middle of the 17th century, Game of Goose. And it's a straightforward anti-clockwise spiral, um, finishing a square number, uh, I think 63. Uh, what's the earliest thing that I collected? Well, I've been able to date these little games counters. Um, the coronet at the top is an earl's coronet. Um, the arms are partly the arms of the Middleton family, and the earl was made into a duke around uh, 1725, so we know these don't date from much after 1725. So that's the earliest thing that I've been able to date that I've actually picked up. Um, the earliest printed game was this dissected puzzle, sometimes called jigsaws, but the jigsaw wasn't invented until later, but um, these are designed to teach children initially geography and then other things, and um, you put them together and learn where the counties go. And this little one has got very nice cartouches. It's by a printer called, or publisher called Robert Sayer, and it's dated 1771, quite soon after jigsaws were invented or dissected puzzles first came out in England, I think, in about 1766. A traveller's companion to the post roads of England and Wales. And the post roads were the equivalent of the motorways because they were the major routes, perhaps maintained at government expense. And at the top, there's a little picture of the post and there's a chap racing along with a little post box strapped on the saddle behind him and three people behind who are perhaps the guards and at the bottom is a little post van uh, chasing along drawn by four horses so it's nice. Um, rights and wrongs. This is a similar anti-clockwise spiral from probably the end of the 18th century. Uh, the new game of emulation um, abhorrence of vice and love of virtue. Uh, little games equipment. Here are some little fish. Um, nicely made. Y you know, you can get all sorts of fish and these are some of the nicer ones that I found. And you only find the fish with English games. And I wondered why and I asked a Frenchman and he looked very condescending at me. And he said, oh, he said, you English, you never bother learning foreign languages. He said, the French word for a counter is fish. A new English thought it meant fish. <laughs> so I was put in my place. Uh, and um, anyway, that, that, that was a nice little story. And these are educational aids. This is Progress of the Dairy, um, produced by a firm called Wallace, around again the turn of the 18th century. 
um, designed to stimulate conversation and to teach children a little about where butter and cheese comes from. And there are eight cards in this, uh, six, seven, eight, should be eight, and I've got seven in this set, but it's a very rare set, and I haven't seen another set anywhere. And what's interesting is at the back, there's little tags fixed on with, with some kind of sealing wax, and you could stand the cards up and have a discussion with the governess or with somebody about them. Here's a similar dissected puzzle from maybe a 10 or 20 years later, showing not butter and cheese, but how a plum pudding is assembled and bringing in the raisins or plums, uh, harvesting the grain, and you've got a little grocer's shop and a baker's shop. And I really like the picture at the bottom um, of the family having the plum pudding and the infant is on grandma's lap and the uh, younger child is on a high chair and the two slightly older children have to stand. That interested me because they're not big enough to sit on a proper grown-up chair. Here's some boys playing marbles um, about that time, uh, maybe 1820. Um, here's some girls playing battledore and shuttlecock, a time of early badminton, again about that time. Uh, the word battledore, incidentally, can also mean an alphabet on a bat-shaped um, piece of card or whatever, so it's an educational toy as well, which is why they say on the rhyme underneath, in painted battledores, who tries to learn the letters well, like shuttlecock she quickly flies, and soon will read and spell. Um, games, it's called this little booklet, Games or Holy Day Recreations, and you know, makes you realise where the word holiday comes from. These are amusements, really, um, light-hearted, fortune-telling cards, maybe uh, 1810 or so. I'm showing several things of this sort of period, but I like them, and um, they give you an indication of what young men and young ladies found as fun at that time. And you can read uh, on these, um, I think you, the, if, if a lady was to be asked to pick a card and you would read her fortune, um, you would have the lady's card in your hand and read the answers, and the, the same with the gentleman. So, for example, um, on the gentleman's card, you'll pick a card and you'd be asked what your uh, wife, well, where you might meet your wife the first time, and on one card it says, in a pastry shop. Um, and then in a, another question is, what's she going to be doing the first time you meet her? And the answer there is perhaps smiling to show her teeth. You know, uh, I, obviously you'd have a bit of a laugh um, and the boys, you know, they'd be asked, uh, they, well, yes, um, lady would say, what, what's your husband um, going to be doing when you meet him? And uh, two answers there are either bragging about his carriage or offending all the company, <laughs> you know. Uh, yes. <laughs> and um, what are you going to do after you get married? Well, you know, if you're lucky, it says, love home, be it ever so homely, you know, which is the same message as on that earlier card I was talking about. If you're unlucky, it says, be very suspicious, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's quite nice. Um, and here again, uh, not valuable, but interesting, they made handmade little cards. These are slightly later, but obviously, you know, the same amusement. Um, and one of the questions uh, the gentlemen are asked here, the, the last one is, do you prefer the ladies to the bottle? 
and you know what do you say if you if you're lucky it, it says uh, that requires a little consideration <laughs> but uh, maybe if you're even luckier it says one kiss and I'll tell you and here you know some maybe a little girl or some teenager who knows um, has made a scrapbook very very carefully um, lined the um, print and mounted it in an artistic way and she's put in little, or I assume it's a she, little valentines that she's been given and somebody's cut out these tiny little bits of paper and written rhymes and arrows on it you know, huge amount of care and trouble to impress a young lady perhaps um, a valentine and a scrapbook that obviously you know, it isn't just casual, it's something that she's been very careful to assemble and these are a bit similar and a bit later, they've got silk edges and they're again made as conversation cards so a governess perhaps would get out or perhaps the child would first make these carefully and then they'd be got out and a conversation could be started with them uh, party game one you're familiar with in a little booklet called Parlour Amusements I love my love with an A because he's amiable I'll send him to Andover and so on so obviously you're having as you go round to think of, of nouns starting with the same letter and if you can't eventually think of another one because they've all been had you pay a forfeit and here are the children at the party or playing or what's called crying the forfeits a little bit later uh, I think around 1860 illustrated by an illustrator J.W. Barfoot produced by a games maker called Ogilvy uh, the same game as a card game um, called Bows and Bells which is in the collection uh, same, yes, these are the, the, the printed cards that go with it um, hate my love with an M because she's melancholy so I took her to Manchester <coughs> uh, but I did give her macaroons and mushrooms and mead <laughs> um, the same firm, a little bit earlier um, David Ogilvy had produced good and bad passions again designed a little bit of a message how children <coughs> are expected to behave and I love these cards you know, there's one here um, sorry, let me uh, their obstinacy, or that's irritability, that's right, that's obstinacy, uh, selfishness, quarrelsomeness, and negligence, of course, is letting the pig out. <laughs> so, you know, this is an uh, illustrator called Madeley, who's done lovely humorous illustrations around that time. This is produced in 1840, and the one I showed you before is about 1850. Uh, going on to the 1890s, little bit of discussion at the moment about where snakes and ladders originated from and it's generally accepted that in the temples in India there are wall hangings showing that you can climb a ladder towards heaven and you can slide down a snake if you misbehave and have further to climb back up again so snakes and ladders with little pictures of children doing good and bad things came from India this particular board doesn't have any good and bad things on it just the snakes and the ladders and it is in fact the earliest that dated English snakes and ladders I think it's registered in about uh, 1892 by a firm called Ayers and um, it's interesting to me that um, they had a game that was out 10 or 20 or 30 years before that called the game of the snail and here's a version of their game of the snail it's the same anti-clockwise spiral but it's also got the promotions and demotions that you've got on their snakes and ladders board 
So you could argue, if you were interested at all, that snakes and ladders didn't entirely come from the Indian game. It also derived from the English game of snail. That's my theory, anyway. Um, talking about where games came from, Boris Johnson's very, very keen on saying that Wiff-Woff is the origin of table tennis, not ping-pong. And here's Wiff-Woff that I found. Um, this one has got some celluloid balls in it, but I'm not completely sure it should, because the name Wiff-Woff implies a sort of um, a, a lightweight ball. And the rules here say um, this is a game played with a lightweight ball. Uh, it's more or less contemporary with table tennis origins. But what's interesting to me here is it says, oh, ten years earlier than this, another game came out, but it was played with a rubber ball. And it didn't catch on because the rubber ball kept knocking over the ornaments in the dining room. Uh, so, you know, now you could say, well, table tennis perhaps had its origins in an earlier game. Uh, this one made me smile. Another version of indoor tennis. The idea of playing tennis in an armchair. You know, well, I like the graphics and just the general idea of that one. Uh, here's, yes, what I would call a, a penny game. Just as they have penny toys, they had penny games. You could buy them for a penny. Little children would buy them themselves down the toy shop instead of waiting for Christmas. And the pieces came in a little matchbox, and literally a matchbox. So this one would have in uh, some little travellers and a dice um, and maybe some instructions, and there would be a cheaply made cardboard board that go with it. Um, this one is called the Tupney Tube, because obviously the underground must have cost tuppence, I suppose. And um, the tram driver and the bus driver have still got their whips. The tube driver's got a flat cap. Um, I'm not, an in, I'm not a, uh, knowledgeable on transport matters, but the underground train or the tube must have, I suppose, at that time had a steam train on it, and I can't imagine quite how that worked. But somebody will one day tell me. Um, the little printed board that <coughs> went with that game it was superseded about ten years later by this one, which is called Tram versus Bus. And here, down the bottom, you can see um, it's now a terminus of the Electric Tramway Company, and the bus is now the Roseberry Motorbus Co. So times have moved on. Moving on to the First World War, um, Sky Pirates is a puzzle where you try and get to the Zeppelin without falling down a hole. And it's just a reminder that at the beginning of the First World War, um, we had these, certainly on the east coast where I lived, um, great big things appearing in the air above the villages and dropping tin cans full of smouldering debris onto the thatched roofs, causing mayhem. It's maybe the first time that English peace and quiet had been interrupted since the Norman Conquest. You know, we, literally there was terror in the villages. And it wasn't until we managed, the scientists over here managed to invent a, an exploding bullet that um, we found that the multiple gas bags inside the Zeppelin could be set, set off in a chain reaction and one of them was brought down and then they very quickly stopped coming. Um, it made me think about, you know, modern times and uh, guided missiles and how battleships are perhaps becoming obsolete. Um, but anyway, beginning of the First World War, um, reflection on the times. If you think now modern Bain is people sitting on their sofas uh, looking at their iPads or the, the children listening to their headphones, well, here it is a hundred years ago. You know, I, I love this picture um, of a board game cover, the wireless game. And a little bit of amusement for the 19, 1920s. This one's called Flirtation. Uh, interesting board game for a number of reasons, but 
the board itself is here, I've not seen it anywhere else, it's round the edge of the box and Charlie and the soldier slide along <coughs> as they're moving and the object of course is to get as close as possible to the young lady. <laughs> Flirtation. A uh, bit more serious at the beginning of the Second World War, GHQ, General Headquarters, and here you've got the British flags and the French flags and the Nazi flags and a war game imagining what the war's going to be like and the imagination was, of course, that we'd pretty soon go over into Germany and get to Berlin and that would be the end of it, but it, it didn't work out quite like that. Um, now, more or less at the end of pictures, um, up to 1950 now, this is probably one of the earlier space race games, and what's nice about this is it has got a moving screen which more or less introduces the idea of computer games and television screens, and you move the screen round by t twiddling little wooden knobs you can see at the top and bottom and it moves along so this is Astron um, a latest game by Waddington's around 1950 uh, these are the same people that brought out over in England Monopoly and the GHQ game that I showed you so after 1950 I haven't got many pictures to show you mainly because uh, some of the games are under copyright um, there are in total 700 items on the website in this period um, and my collection, as you've been told, includes some, a nice collection of 1970s strategy games. And I, I wasn't initially interested in this period from 1950 onwards, but when I got this collection of strategy games um, that Eileen Scott had collected, and must have been well over a hundred of them, I realised they were important, and I also realised that in England at that time we were the leading country inventing new strategy games, and there's some quite good stuff amongst them. So I collect them as a group, or kept them back as a group. And the other big group, as you've been told, was a uh, local museum said to me in 1992, would I run a major exhibition of board games? And it ran for about three months, and all the school children came to take part. Uh, it was very, very successful. But all the makers in England for that particular year sent me examples to be, you know, proud to be producing this. And I got 100 board games from just that one year, and I realised that was a very important snapshot of that particular time. So that again had to be kept. And having had those two collections, I filled the gaps a little bit. But choosing games that I found interesting and that perhaps my family had enjoyed. And, you know, like when my family grew up, we really enjoyed playing uh, Hare and Tortoise, which is a, a lovely board game in, invented by David Parlett you might still be able to buy it, but you can certainly still get it on the internet. And um, there were lots of other games, you know, Formula One was a nice race game, and um, whatever your favourite ones are, you can still find them. Um, they're not hard to get hold of, but I have included some as just examples in the collection to bring the collection up to date. Now, you may think this is all very light-hearted and just a bit of fun, so I did go back to these cards I showed you at the beginning with morals um, and I can finish with just well not quite finish but I can show you one or two of these morals about this is gaming this is uh, sports and pastimes I think um, number one mirth with thy labor sometimes put in use or year it says there but I think it means use that better thou mayst thy labor endure and Underneath is, of course, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But it's still interesting, you know, in 70, 1670 or whenever, 350 years ago, 
when you think everybody was Puritan or whatever, they did actually value recreation and play. It's, it's not commonly understood that. Um, and finally, like number four, when the short winter days yield no delights and harmless game or, game or two at cards are nights, may pass the tedious hours away in mirth and to our drooping spirits give new birth. So, you know, there you are. That's summing up what I'm trying to give you a message about. And as I said, if you want to see more, until all the images are available at, at uh, the Bodleian, you can go to this website I've mentioned. Uh, you select examples and you um, can just enter a name if you want to find a particular name or a maker, or you can just browse by clicking by date or by alpha. And then uh, you can see I think they let you see 30 items a page and you can browse through starting you know, in 1650 and getting right up to 2000. Um, but I would just say as a word of caution that the information about makers is incomplete. It's my next project for the next two years is making it a bit more complete. Um, why and where? Well, of course, I think these games are a reflection of British culture. And I think particularly here, we're lucky that we've never had an invasion We've got lots of material that hasn't been destroyed. We've had a, an empire that brought in stuff from abroad. Um, we've been interested in rules. A sort of part of the British character is writing rules and making sure people stick to them. We've got words in our culture like fair play, play the game, what fun. It's an important part of our culture that's not commonly publicised very much, not much studied. It's thought of as a bit light-hearted, but it's very important, I think. It's now, I think, fortunately, going to be a, a national resource at the Bodleian in conjunction with what the Bodleian had already got. The wonderful games already there in the Johnson collection, the wonderful children's literature in the Opie collection, and s some quite important copyright deposits of rules of games, the Bodleian being a, a copyright library. So, I don't know if I have more or less filled my time. I can take one or two questions if anybody wants.